Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we are doing part two of Stefan Kesting's 1,000-mile paddle through the Canadian wilderness. Part one was last Thursday. By the way, this is a revisited episode from a few years ago. And if you haven't checked out part one, check that out. It's from It's literally just two episodes back. Check it out because it left on a cliffhanger. Uh, well, not literally a cliffhanger. Uh, it, it could be a real cliffhanger. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, after all. There's you never know things. Crazy things do happen. But anyway, it was a very tense situation. Stefan didn't know if he could continue or not. Well, little bit of a spoiler. He does continue the journey, and this is the second half of that journey. So enjoy. Thankfully, thankfully that didn't happen. Glad that everything, you, you were able to complete the journey. But, you know, I, I was looking up something. I'm not super familiar with this area. I noticed a lot of rapids. Did you have to deal with some pretty hairy rapids? Because I, I know you're not starting at a really high elevation and you drop down, what, maybe 1,000, 1,200 feet over the course of the 1,000 miles. But it seems like there was some big drops here and there. Well, that's uh, not exactly true. Because, yes, you don't start at super high elevation. You start about 1,200 or 350 meters or some 400 meters, something like that. But remember that I was also going upstream as well as downstream. So there were parts that I was climbing uphill <laughs> and, in fact, quite long sections because the entire Reindeer River was uphill and the entire Cochrane River was uphill. And so, yeah, you're dealing with big rapids there just going the wrong way. Um, the nature of it... I, I've done a lot of whitewater paddling here on the coast, uh, on in the essentially the mountains of the the west coast, and the the nature of rivers is quite different. And this is often a source of miscommunication between eastern paddlers and western paddlers. Western paddlers kind of assume more or less ongoing rapids, and if there's a bad rapid, it's just an intensification of what's already there. Or maybe there's a little eddy above it and an eddy below it. But by and large, the mountain rivers continue kind of at a steady pace with the occasional bigger drop mixed in. The eastern rivers, the Canadian Shield rivers, they're very much pool and drop. It's very much lake, 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 rapid. Lake, 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 swifts, rapid. And so the same amount of elevation drop over 1,000 miles, you can't really compare that because 200 of those miles, or sorry, 800 of those miles are either lakes or pretty flat. So it's, it's only in rare situations where you can say, okay, the next 50 kilometers looks like there's pretty much continuous current. And we can look at the, eleva the elevation drops and the contour intervals and predict how bad this whitewater is going to be. So there were definitely uh, easy to run rapids. There were definitely times when uh, you're basically running swifts for hours and hours, although with the terrible weather for the last eight days of the trip, there are times that you're in swifts, you're in, you know, solid class one whitewater, which nothing to worry about, but you're going, why the hell am I staying in place? Why am I not going downstream? It's because the wind is blowing you upstream at the same speed as the water is taking you downstream. So then you're just careening widely, wildly from left to right. Uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely some good whitewater. Um, it's interesting taking a look at some of the people who've gone before. It was in, I believe, 1912 that one of the first 
white people to go down this river and document it. It was a white uh, guy out of, I want to say Minnesota, and an Ojibwe Indian. So it's Ernst Ernest Oberholzer and Billy McGee. And Billy McGee was an American Ojibwe. And they did this amazing, I want to say, like a 120-day trip that basically started north of Winnipeg, went up. I did the part of their route, but then they also paddled back south again at the end of it. And they took pictures. They're amazing. And they, you know, documented what they were going through. And when you take a look at what they were going through, sometimes the rapids are the same. Like, okay, that was difficult. And sometimes things they had trouble in, I had no trouble in at all. And sometimes I ran into big, dangerous areas that they didn't talk about at all. So maybe they didn't document it. But more likely, when you take a look at the, the giant walls of rock on either side of the river, especially as you get further north, where the, you know, in the spring, when all these lakes thaw out and you get these giant ice jams going down river, it just rearranges the river every year. So something, if, if you paddle it in 2018, you could go, oh my God, watch out for the rapids at the end of Casimir Lake. And then I paddle it the next year after the ice has gone out and basically rearranged the river and the riverbed. And maybe it's bad and maybe it's not bad. Really, the only thing that remains a constant are the bedrock controlled rapids, right? Rapids can either be formed with bedrock or with boulders. And up there, the boulders are anyone's guess. And I roll a dice or roll some dice and, and see where they, the new rapid is. Um, and then other people had paddled it, you know, Farley Mowat, the famous Canadian author, uh, talked about this river. He paddled it, I want to say in the early fifties. And, but he's a huge exaggerator, right? He'd talk about, you know, then cataclysmically did the walls of water smash together and threaten to reduce our canoe to kindling. And you're paddling it and you're going like, no, no, it, not one of the rapids that he talked about being bad was actually that bad, um, with one possible exception. So yeah, it's a combination of skills. I mean, here's the thing. If you're traveling alone, there's a big, huge difference between traveling alone in an expedition boat loaded with, let's say, 250 pounds of gear with help being, at best, a three-month walk away if, if you lose your radio. And being out playing in whitewater in your tricked out kayak, right? I've run, I, I used to do a ton of whitewater kayaking, whitewater canoeing. And I was running class four, even class five. Um, but we were in a small group. We had safety gear. We're not that far from rescue. We had rescue gear. We're wearing wetsuits. We're wearing helmets. We're wearing elbow pads. There's a small area. You, know, you crack a boat. It sucks. But, you know, you go buy another boat. So there you can push your limits and you go, well, I've got like a 50, 50 chance of doing this rapid successfully, but look at there's a great big pool at the bottom. No big deal. Whereas you, you can't use that thinking at all when you're up North because you break your boat in half. Like that water's really cold. You know, you, good luck. Like, and the river is maybe a, a mile wide. That's a long swim. And now you might, if a storm comes in, they might not be able to get you. You might be sitting there in the bushes for, this is assuming you've kept your radio comms. You might be sitting there for four weeks. And you know what? Zero. <laughs> There's years when nobody paddles this river. It seems on average, the river that I was on, one group a year paddles it, as best as I can guess. 
but you might be the second group that year. It could be a long wait. So if you know for sure you can paddle class four, now you're paddling not a whitewater boat, you're paddling a, a boat that doesn't turn very well and you load it with a ton of gear, so that takes you down to class three. And now you have to add in that safety margin and stay a full step below what you know you can do. Now you're paddling class two. So you're, you're still screwing around in class four. You're, you might be lining it or you're attaching ropes to your boat and sending your boat down little rocky ledges with you not in it. You might be waiting or you might be paddling parts of it and then dragging your boat over the, you know, through the moss, over the moss, through the forest for parts of it. Um, but you're not out there for running tough white water. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be. Um, I'm trying to think of the climbing. I know what the equivalent is. You see some of the moves that people are doing in sport climbing or in speed climbing, right? Where they're running up those vertical walls in like five seconds, basically leaping upwards from hold to hold. Yeah. Well, you don't see Alex Honnold do that on the face of El Cap because he would die. Right. Right. It's a much more deliberate and he's, he probably could go harder than what he did, but he didn't because the consequences are just so much higher. Did that answer your question about whitewater? I kind of went off on a whitewater rant. There was did. lots of whitewater, and it was hard. <laughs> I think it did. <laughs> well, you know, it obviously gave you a lot of time to think out there. Um, what, what would you say was, for you, the most enjoyable aspect of just being immersed in the experience for so long? Like, the most enjoyable aspect, just so separated from normal life. And then what would you say was the most challenging aspect um, just being out there so long. Okay. I think the reduction of life to eating and getting ready to eat, paddling and getting ready to paddle, and sleeping and getting ready to sleep, the reduction of life to those three or maybe six things, as opposed to normal life where, you know, okay, this email just came in and this this guy absolutely needs this, but guess what? The contractor is coming by this afternoon to dump a load of, I don't know, I'm making this up here, dump a load of topsoil off for your garden. And guess what? There's an error message in your car. And now your kid is sick and needs to get picked up from school, but your boss wants you to do that in real life. Cause that's not real life in real life. We're getting bombarded with conflicting tasks and priorities all the time. But out there, you know what the priority is. The priority is to get down the river without dying or get up the river without dying. Finish the trip without dying. That's the, that is your only priority, really. And to do that, you need to set up camp. So sometimes, you know, basically what I called sleep. So sometimes what do you need to do that? You might need to fix your tent. You might need to hack out a little area of spruce on the side of a bay because you can't go any further that day. You might need to try and figure out how to set up a tent in a mud flat that it's not going to soak everything that you own inside. You need to travel, which is either paddling or wading or sailing or lining or tracking. And you need to get ready to travel. So that might involve fixing your boat. That might involve, uh, usually involves fixing things. <laughs> it, it might involve route finding, right? Where am I going to go tomorrow? Yeah. Where I think the winds are going to come from here. If I pick the wrong side of this lake, the winds are going to have 40, uh, 40 miles to pick up and even a mild wind would just create these massive waves that'll just smash me into these islands. So that's traveling. And then there's eating, you know, how do I cram enough food down my gullet to not lose too much weight on this trip? How do I 
uh, you know, stuff my face full of food when there's one billion mosquitoes within two meters of me. Uh, the reduction of life to just a few necessities is an amazing luxury. And it, it kind of drowns out other concerns and other priorities. And just to, to be able to go through life, life simplified for a little while is amazing. In terms of the biggest challenge of being out there, uh, this year it was the weather, hands down. The exposure on some of those large lakes. So Reindeer Lake is humongous and Newton Lake is humongous. And even a moderate wind can, you're just, you're just shorebound. You can't travel. Like the options are stay on shore or die. Even in a, you know, canoe that looks a lot like a kayak that's got a spray deck on it you know you you can't go out there and if you did go out there you wouldn't make any distance anyway and towards the end the weather got so bad i mean when the natives when i met ran into the natives close towards the end from arvia they were like man you picked the worst week of the year to come down this river i'm like that's i know (laughs) i was out in it uh even on a little tiny widening of the river where it's maybe maybe a mile and a half wide Right, maybe the wind's got a mile and a half to pick up, uh, to create waves and pick up speed. You're just not traveling. You 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 break down camp, you paddle out of your little protected bay, and you realize I could spend all day paddling in place here. It'd be like a treadmill, and the only thing that would happen is I'd be destroyed at the end of it. You know, turning around and going back and pitching the tent and waiting for the wind to drop maybe in the evening. So the the weather made it really tough, and I think. Although that being said, you know, a couple of the nicest days of my entire life were in that last week because there were eight days in that last week. I don't count real good. And two of them were perfect. Two of them were blue skies and tailwinds and six of them were horrendous. And those two nice days where you're paddling and you have current and a tailwind, what a luxury, tailwind and a current, and you're going through the various, uh, the, the, the tundra landscape, and there's hundreds and hundreds of caribou that are running on the ridges alongside you and then swimming across the river right ahead of you. And then seals that have swum up from Hudson Bay for 100 miles, 150 miles. And you're sitting there going, remember this, drink this in, because this is going to stay with you for the, you know, you want this to stay with you for the rest of your life. You know, the next time you're stressed in traffic, think back to this and as a perspective adjuster. So although the weather was extremely challenging, just being, how about just being wet, wearing, uh, either polypropylene or merino wool with a raincoat on or a raincoat off. If you're tucked in bed in your sleeping bag, you're wearing it with a raincoat off. When you go outside, you're wearing your raincoat and you're like a a knight in armor, right? You've got your hat, your raincoat, your uh, PFD, your, your, your life jacket, your gloves, and you're just barely warm enough for 12 to 14 hours of paddling. That, that was tough. That was, uh, I mean, it's, I've been back three weeks now and I'm just beginning to feel normal. It's funny. I, I would go through this pattern after being back like, yeah, man, I can work out and I'd work out. And the next day I felt like I was run over by a truck, not for a hard workout. And then I'd slowly get better and I'd do another workout and I would just feel again, run over by a truck. So two days ago, I went for a hike, not a hard hike. Yesterday, about two in the afternoon, it was like, 
I felt like I'd been up for 36, 48 hours. I felt like I'd fought this, you know, a giant never ending house fire, which I hadn't. And just today I'm beginning to recover. So it, it, it's taking some time to, uh, not to adjust to being back in society. That was pretty easy, but to recover physically and probably like at a neurotransmitter and uh, hormonal level, just, uh, pushing that hard and getting that little sleep and being that wet and that cold for that long. It, it's really taken a big chunk out of me. And so you say that the transition back into society hasn't been tough in the last few weeks? No, I, I wouldn't say that at all. It, uh, unfortunately this is again, something that I've tested in the past. And so I, I, I was fairly confident that it would work. Although it's funny, you're out there, you're literally dealing with life and death issues, right? Like if you run this rapid on the wrong side, you're probably going to die. If you screw up, um, you know, on finding the portage, you might die because there's a waterfall around the corner. If you load this shotgun wrong, cause I, I did have a gun cause you're ending up in black, you're starting in black bear country, going into barren land, grizzly country, and ending up in polar bear country. So I don't carry a gun every time I go out in the bush, but I do when I'm in polar bear country. You know, you're walking around with a loaded gun. If you screw up and there's one in the chamber and you fall, like you blow your head off, you could die. Like there's legitimate hazards and you could get eaten by a bear too if you don't take the gun. So there are legitimate hazards. And then coming back into society where there's this rampant epidemic of fake safety, you know, you're in the airport, you're checking your bag and they're like, do you have anything sharp in this bag? I'm like, yeah, I've got a hatchet. Well, like send you over to secondary screening. I'm like, the hatchet's got a sheath on it and it's wrapped in a tarp and it's in the middle of the bag. Yeah, but it could cut its way free and like fling its way across the airport and lodge its throat in a, you know, lodge itself in the throat of a traveler or an airport. I'm like, no, a hatchet isn't going to do that. Like, like let's stop making up fake safety concerns here. And it's just, that was hard to handle when you have recently, you know, been had legitimate safety concerns. But I should also point out, I mean, there's so many safety concerns. This, this struck me. If you go, so where do you live? Uh, what, what part of, you live in, in Denver, did you say? Yes, Denver. Okay. So I don't know how far that is. I'm guessing it's probably a 20 hour drive. So if I was to yeah. drive down to Denver... I'd spend a lot of time on highways without dividers in the middle and I'd pass, I don't know, 10,000 cars. I'm making that number up 10,000 cars traveling 60 miles an hour in the opposite direction, passing me two to three feet away time after time after time. I don't know anybody in those oncoming cars. I don't know if they're high, if they're sleep deprived, if they're drunk, if they're fighting with their girlfriend. I know that they're texting and I know that they're surfing Instagram as they're driving. And yet, when I say I drove down to Denver, nobody goes, oh my God, you could have died 10,000 times. But the truth is, you could have died 10,000 times. And you take a look at the statistics, look at how many people die in society from car accidents. Everybody knows a lot of people who've either been horribly injured or died in car accidents. And, uh, you know, I think that's a useful thing to keep in mind when we look at the risk levels of adventure sports. Sure. 
it's dangerous to be out there with polar bears. Sure, it's dangerous to be running rapids. It's dangerous to be out there by yourself. It's dangerous to be courting hypothermia by being out in uh, an Arctic gale for hours and hours and hours. But we're also taking risks every day, especially with driving. Like the, <laughs> the, the fact that driving down to Denver, I would be three feet away from either, well, either certain death or dismemberment 10,000 times. You know, that, we got to keep that in mind too. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. That's a great point. You know, it's, I'm sure it's something you can share with your audience. And so what, you know, you'd say the transition wasn't terribly difficult. Gosh, how did it end just when you got to the bay? And then where did you go? Did you have something set up? I'm sure you did, but but what did that look like once you finished? Because that's, well, that's, that's not easy either to figure out. That was actually the biggest. Okay, so just a little bit of context. I came out, the Thle Louisa ends about 40 or 50 miles south of a town called Arviat and about 150 miles north of a town called Churchill on Hudson Bay. So in the past, I've paddled uh, about a 30 or 40 mile stretch on Hudson Bay from the mouth of the Seal River to Churchill. And that in itself doesn't sound so exhausting. Oh, Big deal. The guy paddled on the ocean for 30 miles. I'll say that those three days that it took to do that or two and a half days were some of the scariest days. That, that's the, some of the sketchiest outdoor situation I've ever been in. Hudson Bay is a beast. First of all, there are no trees. So the wind just picks up like crazy. Second of all, it's 10 to 14 foot tides, which is humongous. And it's five mile tidal flaps. So when the tide goes out, you've got white water going out to sea because it's got a, you know, it's a 14 foot drop over five miles. That's reasonably significant. And then when the tide comes in, you've got white water going in. And when you're out at sea, if you're paddling at low tide, you can't see shore. Like you can, your paddle can be hit in the bottom, but, and you're following a compass bearing going, man, I hope this compass is working. Uh, but you can't actually see shore. You're just paddling into grayness. And if a storm were to come up, and Hudson Bay is 800 miles across, I think, 800 kilometers, 800 miles. Anyhow, a giant freaking distance across. If an easterly wind came up, you would just be hammered with nowhere to go, right? You, you, you'd be in, in knee-deep water, just getting massacred by breakers. And then just to make matters worse, when you try to sleep, that section of coast has got a huge concentration of polar bears. And that's where all the polar bears live. They live on the Hudson Bay coast. And in the winter, they're out on the ice hunting seals. In the summer, they're inland, not eating much of anything, except the occasional paddler. So, I mean, polar bears scare the crap out of me. You know, black bears, you know, you respect them. You could get hurt by them. Most people get hurt and killed by black bears, but that's only because there are so many of them. And because there's so much interaction with them, right? Those are the bears you see at the dump. Those are the bears you see on the side of the road. Uh, polar bears are humongous. They're 100% carnivore. You look like their preferred food, which is a seal, except you can't swim as good. 
And so that 30 mile stretch between the Seal River and uh, Churchill, which I did years ago, was terrifying. Because, you know, like I said, you're not sleeping, you're spending a huge amount of time battling wind and waves, and you're just worried about being out at sea because the storm could come up, and you're worried about being on shore because bears could come by. Uh, and so this stretch that I would have had to do to get to Arviat from the mouth of the Fle Louisa was twice that. And I was prepared to do it because I'd had difficulty finding somebody to pick me up from town. I'd talked to the RCMP. I'd talked to the uh, some of the wildlife people, not the right wildlife people, as it turned out. I tried to get in touch with the Hunters and Trappers Association. I talked to the search and rescue people. And it was really difficult to find somebody willing to come you know, sort of on speculation to pick up this crazy white guy uh, from a river mouth. Now, years ago, there was a guy called Joe Savikatak Sr. who used to do it. And your readers or your listeners will never have heard of him. But Joe Savikatak Sr. used to be the wildlife conservation officer out of Arviat. And he used to be the guy to pick up the occasional paddler. So he basically a side business a couple times a year. He'd go out and head up pick up paddlers from this river, pick up paddlers from that river, drive them to town. So the only references I found to him were all from a few years ago. I'm like, he's an old guy. I'm wondering if he's still alive. So I Googled him, Joseph Ikatak, senior, Arviat, and I find out that he's now the premier of Nunavut. So he's like the governor of the territory, essentially. Uh, you know, like the governor of Idaho. Well, he's the premier of Nunavut. Like, okay, he's probably not picking up paddlers anymore. And... So I tried to find other people to pick me up and I just couldn't. And this was not a riddle that I solved by the time I left uh, on this trip. So my, I had two or three options. One was to call a helicopter company out of Churchill, burn my boat and be picked up. And it would have been like $10,000 by the time I was done. And the reason I would have burned the boat is because they couldn't take the boat. I didn't want the boat to get blown out to sea and then trigger some kind of search and rescue effort. Uh, you know, like lost paddler out on Hudson Bay who probably only survived for a couple hours in that water. Well, a couple, a couple of minutes in that water. The second option was to paddle all the way to Arviat. And I'm so glad I didn't like it's, it would have been a horror show. And as it turns out, the weather was a easterly gale, which meant I would have been pinned on that coast, which meant I would have been right in the, right in the ambush zone for polar bears. And really there are no, the Inuit in that area, they'll happily head inland to live in tents and hunt caribou. And, you know, they're, they're quite comfortable being out on the land, most of them. There isn't one that would feel comfortable being on the coast in a tent, right? They, they, they avoid that area. They'll be in a cabin on that tent for sure. So they'll be in a cabin on that coast. They're not going to be in a tent on that coast. Whereas inland, no problem. So eventually on the trip, I was like, man, I need a better solution than paddling to Arviat. And I called the premier, I had the, the premier's home number <laughs> and I called and I'm like, I got his wife. I'm like, look, I'm so sorry. I know Joe is kind of busy right now being premier, but is there anybody else in town who can help me? And it turned out that his son was willing to come out. And so when I pulled up and super professional, we were exchanging texts via satellite text. And he was like, okay, well, let me know when you reach this landmark and then we'll, you'll be a couple days more. So he super pleasant to deal with. And then the day before I made the coast, I was 50, 50 kilometers. So that's 30 miles from the coast. 
I figured, okay, I've got current. I can be there by noon, especially if I get up at five in the morning. Got up at five in the morning and there was already a, a headwind. I was like, oh, crap. Except I didn't use the word crap. Um, <laughs> and then seven hours of paddling later, I made it to the pickup point. So we're, I'm updating him via satellite text. And they're like, we couldn't get close enough to shore because the tide was out. So they gave me the location of where they'd anchored out on the bay. So I paddled out into the mist. That's also a good trust exercise. I had their GPS location. So with a Garmin and a compass, I paddled out into the mist and there's an occasional intertidal boulder. And eventually one of those boulders turned into a boat and there were two people on the boat. So it was Joseph Iktak Jr., the wildlife conservation officer and senior, the uh, premier of Nunavut, who was home for a couple of days and decided to come out with his son. So yeah, I got picked up on Hudson Bay by the premier of Nunavut and his son, which was, uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then it was a three hour, just really rough boat ride to Arviat, like just wind and waves and getting slammed in the face by ice cold water. And the whole time I'm like, oh my God, thank God I didn't paddle this. Thank God I didn't paddle this. Is this over yet? So that was a huge hole in my logistics, but I did have the bottom line plan of, I, I did have the number of a helicopter company that was willing to fly out and get me for a huge amount of money because helicopters are crazy expensive compared to bush planes. And uh, I'm just glad I didn't have to invoke that option. Yeah, so my first contact back in civilization was a couple of guys on a boat and then the town of Arviat. It's a small little town, I'll say a couple thousand people. I, they got me to shore. I checked, there's two hotels in town. One of them had one room for one night. And so I booked that. Popular place, huh? Yeah, well, it, it, <laughs> it's kind of an administrative center for the territory. And then there's also some mineral exploration around there for, you know, uh, not oil and gas, but things like gold. So, you know, if, if those rooms are full, I would have spent another night in a tent, which I wasn't looking forward to at that point because I'd already made the mental leap like, okay, this trip's over. I uh, went to the one of the two stores in town. I didn't even get out of my rain gear. Just carried all my stuff into the hotel room. Uh, went to the store in town, bought a new set of clothes, and went back and threw out the stuff that I was wearing because I'd been living in it for like a week. It was threadbare. It would stank to high heaven. Uh, had dinner, repacked, and then just collapsed and flew out the next morning. So it, uh, yeah, I think, I think I would have enjoyed if, if, in, if the weather had been nice on that last week, that would have been a stupendous piece of country. Cause when it's, when it's storming, all the animals go to ground, right? They're not going to be out prancing around in in horizontal wind and horizontal rain. They're going to be hiding in a spruce, you know, like a little Krumholtz grove somewhere so i didn't see any polar bear i saw lots of uh, signs of grizzly bear basically if you build a cabin up there sooner or later a bear is going to tear it apart and it's amazing to see the the power of those animals man they can just demolish you know <laughs> i laugh at your plywood i laugh at your two by four studs <laughs> watch me tear it apart so did you uh did you find what you were looking for out there with that experience yeah, it'd been a goal of mine to get up and see that country, to paddle Newton Lake, to do the Thle Louisa. There's just so much history there that I've I've been reading about for years. So 
the goal was partially to complete it and the goal was to see it and the goal was kind of to celebrate. I mean, it's selfish. I, I, I do. I release a ton of free content online. I don't know if you've seen any of the videos or the blogging or the, the podcasting, but that's all free. So you can make an argument that that's semi not selfish, but you know, five years ago, being down to 12% kidney function and getting up in the morning and feeling like I'd already been up for 48 hours, stumbling through the day and then going through the transplant surgery and then a, another follow-up surgery six months later, which is arguably more painful to remove the old malfunctioning kidneys. Yeah, pretty close to death. And as I, you know, 50 years ago, I would be dead. A hundred years ago, I'd be dead. 5,000 years ago, I'd be dead. If I was born today in rural Pakistan, I'd be dead. There are just so many scenarios under which that doesn't play out well. So I'm incredibly lucky to be born, you know, here and now. Uh, I don't know how much of your audience I'll alienate, but I'm a Canadian, so I'm allowed to say it. Thank God for the socialized medicine healthcare that we have, because I'm not destitute now. Um, so this is one Canadian's opinion about socialized medicine, but I'm really happy that we have it and it, uh, you know, whatever problems there are with it, I'm super grateful. And so it was kind of like a, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm not dead. Let's just celebrate being alive. Let's celebrate turning 50. Let's celebrate having survived. Let's celebrate having come through the tough times. And let's do something selfish for, you know, for 50 days, which didn't end up being 50 days. It ended up being 42 days because as just as you don't want to run the limits of white water that you're capable of running, right? If you can run grade four in controlled circumstances, you don't want to run grade four on an, on an Arctic canoe trip. Similarly, just because you have 50 days of food doesn't mean you want to go to 50 days on your trip because all it takes is one you know, the wind to go up by 10 kilometers an hour from 30 to 40 kilometers an hour and you're not moving or the wind to shift in direction by 10 degrees or the temperature to drop by five degrees or, uh, you to tweak your shoulder and it takes a week to recover. You, you get sick and you, you can't travel for four or five days and all of a sudden you used up your buffer. So just cause you have food for 50 days doesn't mean you should be out for 50 days. It means that you should be trying <laughs> doing everything you can to build up a safety buffer in case things go wrong. Cause in life, usually, you know, life happens as we were talking about earlier. And, uh, you, you want to be, you want some kind of level of safety margin there. Absolutely wise when you're, you know, like you said, all those factors. So, you know, thank God, like you said, for your health care that you're still alive, that you were able to do this and complete this successfully. Um, did, did it do anything for you in the sense of, I got to do something like this again, or is it just too soon being only three weeks home? <laughs> it's too soon. And honestly, I think the next time I do, I head up there, I'd like to do it with people. I, I got my solo, my, I mean, first of all, you know, life returns a pace, all the, the things that I put off and. You know, it, it took a lot of organization to do this. I still have those two jobs. I still have kids. It's not like I can bugger off and do this every year. So it's not even an option. 
I, I think next time I head up into the Arctic, I'd like to do it with people. Um, I'd like to do it, you know, maybe with my kids. Um, I've definitely not the last time I'm going up there. I don't have the, uh, the next big, uh, box to check. I mean, there's the Canadian Arctic is a gigantic place. I would love to do the Kazan. I'd love to do the back river. I'd love to do the Thelon and some of the tributaries that go into the Thelon, the hood, the copper mine. I mean, you could, in my ideal world, had I bought world enough and cash, then I think I'd pick off a different Arctic river every summer and spend a month paddling that. And then probably spend a couple months a year in some place warm in the wintertime and spend the rest of the time enjoying, uh, you know, the temperate climbs. But I, I don't have the next big thing on the go. I got to spend some time, uh, you know, let, let me, let me feel hundred percent healthy first and then maybe I'll start <laughs> daydreaming about the next big trip that I'll do for my 60th birthday. Although, you know, I thought about, thought about. A Greenland crossing that would be that'd be kind of cool to do an east to west or a west to east traverse across Greenland but that would that would that would involve the logistics for that would uh, would rival and probably surpass the logistics for this thousand mile solo so maybe we'll have another conversation in five years time about that hey there you go I mean we'll we'll be around you know lord will and the creek don't rise we'll be we'll be able to interview you for that too so maybe satellite technology will have improved that we can do it live <laughs> from the uh, the old dew line station that's halfway across the ice cap hey, won't that be something so, so how, how can people find out more about this experience and more about you and what you do well if they want um sort of the day-by-day -day, uh blog format of this uh, of the trip, if they go to grapplearts.com slash solo, that's where all those um, trip updates came and a whole bunch of pictures. It's it's a bit long. I think I'm wondering if it's an embryonic book. I, I'd, have, I'd want it to be about more than just the, you know, the trip. First I did this thing and then this other thing happened and then I did that. I mean, that would be like the worst of the adventure sport genre, right? Like everyone's read climbing books of then we did this wall and then we cut over to there and like, okay, that's useful, I suppose, if you're going to climb that same mountain, but what's the larger picture here? So if I could combine that somehow, something about achieving goals or setting goals and, and overcoming uh, hardships, you know, at the risk of venturing a little bit into the, we don't even want to say it, the motivational you know, area. Because I think there are lessons here. There's lessons here about keeping yourself going. There's lessons about planning something big. There's lessons about getting started on, you know, hacking items off your life list. Uh, so anyhow, the, the very, very, very rough form for that would be at grapplearts.com, which is my main site, slash solo. Uh, I'm on Instagram, so Stefan underscore Kesting. Hopefully if you search for my name on Instagram, you'll find it. So if you look for the posts that I did from July and first part of August, late June, July and August of 2019, I was uploading photos live and commentary live from the field. So that's a good way to um, see what I was up to in the outdoor aspect of my life. I think those are the two best ways. Of course, if you're interested in uh, jujitsu, uh, look up what I've got on YouTube. 
if you uh, search for my name on YouTube, you should find one or two videos or close to a thousand videos. That's awesome. Maybe you'll incorporate some lessons into, you know, your jitsu, jujitsu videos. And, you know, it's, it's very, it's very similar. Like the, um, whether you're starting a business or trying to get, finish your university degree or help a loved one through cancer or get your, you know, black belt in jujitsu or do a thousand mile solo trip or whatever it is, you know, get a down payment to buy a house. These are big projects. And if the the steps aren't that different, I mean, fundamentally you got to get started and then you got to keep going until you succeed, but you can get more refined about those things, right? My new favorite statistic, I'm reading a book called atomic habits. Have you heard of it? I have not actually. Okay. So it's not a very long book. It's not a very complicated book, but the central sort of equation of that book is that if you improve at something 1% each day, if you make the small little changes to improve 1% each day, then at the end of 365 days and the joys of compound interest, (laughs) you end up 37 times better than where you started. So essentially 1.01 to the power of 365 equals 37 Level 37. Yeah, level 37. <laughs> and so it's if you're saving money to buy a house, like every day, like what can I do to get closer to this goal that I wasn't doing yesterday? And if I can't do anything today, what can I do to set myself up for success tomorrow? Those that if you apply that heuristic to anything, uh, how do I get straight A's on my in my last year of school? Well, what can I do to improve my marks today that I wasn't doing yesterday? Keep on doing the things that were working yesterday. And if I can't do anything, well, what can I do to set myself up that tomorrow I'll be 2% better, right? Like that, that persistence. I want to get my black belt in jujitsu, which is a tough job. Like that's eight to 10 years. It's not like getting a black belt and you know, having 12-year-old black belt taekwondo kids running around. No, it takes eight to 10 years of really hard training multiple times a week. And so how do I get my ass to class? And if I can't make it to class, what else am I doing? What am I studying? What am I, what techniques am I breaking down in my head? What uh, am I doing for conditioning? What am I doing for rehab? Uh, you know, I, like if you're a rock climber, oh, geez, I can't make it out on the, the, the hill today because it's, you know, sleet. What can I do? Well, there's a gym. There's a rock climbing gym. If that doesn't work, then there's probably rehab. Because you probably have injuries. How can you rehab those injuries? How can you train your brain? What video can you watch? Surely there's somebody out there who's blogged about, I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm outside my area of expertise here, the optimal angle of the ice pick tip for climbing certain kinds of rock. Like, how can you get better than yesterday? by just a little bit. You do that again and again and again and again and again, and you'll be completing your own thousand mile solo trip in no time, whatever your thousand mile solo trip actually looks like. Mm. Yeah. That's everyone can get up and do something and mm-hmm. it might not seem significant. Like you said, but a little research here, a little, little step here, it just builds and builds and builds. And, uh, 
Yeah, you didn't get across. That's one thing you didn't not do is just sit there and paddle each day. Something that a lot of us can do. You know what I'm saying? It's just a matter of doing that over and over and over. And For sure. And figuring out, you know, making sure. The you, bloody boat isn't going to paddle itself. That's right. You know, you write a book. You, you write. You got to write. You want to paddle a river. You got to paddle. You want to do anything. Takes doing that I'm sure thing. that's a common theme among the people that you talk to. Like I, you know, the value of persistence. The, you know, too, too dumb to quit. <laughs> that's yeah, goes a long them. way. Some of them, but uh, they, they makes good stories at, at the very least. <laughs> well, Stefan, I really appreciate you joining me, uh, joining us on the show. And man, what an adventure! And uh, yeah, congratulations once again. Oh well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a pleasure. All right, Stefan. Thanks so much and have a good day, man. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.